I'm in Sierra Madre, so near Pasadena. And I don't know if you saw when you were out here, but the uh, we've got the crazy parrots in Pasadena. The four or five times, just back and forth. I remember. So they're really centrally located, like right here in Sierra Madre. And I can see a couple right now. When I first moved in, I mean, I thought I was hearing chimpanzees. I'd never heard that sort of screeching before. It's like living in a pet shop and it's all around you. Um, and yeah, definitely different. It was kind of magical, you know, having that at a wedding. But I mean, those, I assume that those are pet parrots that were let loose at some point, right? Okay, so I know the story. Oh, good. Our, one of our neighbors who is one of the co-owners of this little marketplace called Mary's Market, um, her father or her grandfather, I can't remember, owned a pet shop that was burning down and he released all these animals into the wild, uh, surveyed, uh, you know, Pee Wee Herman's big adventure style, like running out with all the snakes, birds flying out. So he let, uh, you know, a bunch of these parrots that are not native, they're native to like Mexico and they're actually going, uh, extinct from what I gather in their natural habitat. But for some reason, this, this terrain was just completely suitable for, for their survival. And they thrived. They thrived in Pasadena. They thrived in these mountains. <laughs> From what I hear, them being released is like one of the main reasons why they're not going to go extinct, like period. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, I, you know, I was wondering, as I said, I was at this wedding and I, you know, four or five times I saw them and I assumed it was just the same four or five parrots going back and forth that, you yeah. know, no, they're they're everywhere. They're thriving. L.A. kid grew up there, obviously, and were an actor for much of your youth. How did you move out to Indiana? For my first escape was to to Boston, like I was telling you. Uh, I was sort of living with friends and and playing in a pop group called With Engines that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, and then they were all finishing their last year at Berkeley, and that was sort of my first taste of like something truly different. Uh, and then we all moved back to LA and then I started playing with Foxygen, um, rekindled relationship with Sam and Rado. You grew up with those guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean like they, I think, I think we all went to the same middle school, but I really kind of knew them from being in high school and yeah, yeah. We started, you know, playing in, in Foxygen, uh, you know, kind of blew up there and doing a lot of touring. And I ended up moving to New York City with Rado. I was living in like essentially his his uh, his storage closet. I've been there. Yeah, it was yeah, Manhattan. So I did that in Brooklyn, which is really <laughs> pushing it. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's it's a part of being young and, and you can do that for a while. Uh, and we were out. So Foxygen's label jag jaguar they're based in bloomington indiana so i'd been there once or twice for like we did a couple shows there we picked up merchandise there um when we're traveling through and yeah so i already had like a good support there a group there and, and we we're going back out to bloomington for two weeks uh sam and rado had rented a house to start like per preliminary recordings of what would be star power and it, it didn't it just wasn't the right vibe it didn't work uh, Rado ended up having the Dub Thompson kids come out, uh, fly out to Bloomington, and he ended up using that place to record their debut record. 
which I think is called Nine Songs. Really cool, really punk rock. Awesome. But I then I had two weeks to just hang out in Bloomington because I wasn't needed then. And I met my now wife. There yeah, yeah. So there's, there's the big one. Always, always, always um, the story. Yeah. So I, you know, I met Melinda in Bloomington. I, I think once before when I was out there, she was friends with a lot of people on the label. So like a lot of mutual friends. And, you know, they had just bought a, a house and I was talking about how much I really didn't care for living in New York. Mostly, I bet I would have had a better time had I been living in Brooklyn and not in Manhattan in a closet. But it just wasn't for me. I didn't know enough people there. And 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 I was always on the road and paying New York, Manhattan rent and not living there. It, it just, I, I wasn't having a good time. Uh, so I was relaying that to them. And, and you know, they're like, well, I just bought this place. And uh, <laughs> if you want to like... I've got an extra room for rent if you want to move out. And we were already at that point, we were vibing. I had been like helping them take popcorn off the ceiling and do a little light uh, demoing on the house. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I would love that. And we drove up there immediately and grabbed all my stuff like mid tour and brought it all the way down. And all of a sudden I was a Midwesterner, you know, fast forward 10 years later and, and, you know, married and we had, you know, a house and we were, couple couple dogs and you're you know growing laying down roots uh, 10 years i mean it stuck it yeah you know when you drink the water for 10 years you uh you, i think you become a townie officially it doesn't stick with everybody though right i mean it's sick for you in new york for you know what it sounds like or kind of circumstantial yeah problems but especially coming from la and coming from new york there's a shift in pace of life that you have to deal with. Sure. But you got to remember, I wasn't in LA proper. I was in Agora Hills, which was a small town. It felt like, you know, people call it the Agora bubble. Funny, it, like agoraphobia means like fear of open spaces. Out. Yeah, small spaces. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it really did feel like that. But there is like a nostalgia for home. So I was traveling all over and living in the city. And actually, Bloomington felt kind of like living in agora in a way but no more midwestern version i mean it's a it's a college town so it it fluctuates but we were on the outsides and you know la was like a couple hours away from agora and then you could always go to indianapolis or chicago which is a couple hours away and it just had a very similar you know relaxed feel to it and i think that's it was really easy for me to settle in the one thing that i was here is that it I don't know is is the right word, maybe was, but uh, perhaps still is, but it, it was a good punk town. It was a good DIY town. There's definitely a, an awesome DIY scene. There's a, I had never experienced, <laughs> maybe because there's a lack of basements in California, but that sort of like house show scene, those like underground punk show. There's a really cool band that uh, I think was one of the last bands I saw in Bloomington, the Cowboys. They have a really cool record they just put out. Um, but yeah, kind of DIY house punk scene like that still exists like throughout the Midwest. But yeah, definitely Bloomington still has that in spades. Part of why I'm curious is and I don't again, I don't know if this is the case that much anymore now that obviously the music industry has changed substantially. But all the stories that you hear of people moving to pursue music professionally, it's 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 largely you know, obviously, like Nashville's in there too, but like it's it's New York and LA, and you were in both of those places. 
and somehow you ended up in this in this third place. How was that as a base of operations? Well, you know, so a lot of those people will move out to, for lack of a better word, quote unquote, make it in the industry or, you know, really in a sense to begin their careers. They're looking for that big break. I mean, for me, I got just really lucky and and with with Foxygen, you know, just kind of, again, right place, right time for them. And that also included me, right place, right time. So I had already, you know, established myself in a way. And then like, I knew the right, when I just showed these like series of demos to, you know, the people at JAG, like they really helped me get set up with Western Vinyl, like get those break, you know, through all the red tape that a lot of upcoming artists have to navigate around. I just, again, right place, right time. And I got really lucky. And so I was already established when I was like, at that point living in New York and I was already touring. And then now I had like dying coffee was on, on the way the, the debut record, uh, which I recorded in that apartment in New York. So yeah, like when I was in Bloomington, like things were already in motion. And at that point, it's just like, make records, go on tour, be silly on the internet, (laughs) and, and just keep doing what you're doing. And you can do that, those things anywhere. So it, it was really nice, because, you know, it is a whole lot cheaper in the Midwest. I had great access to a studio, Mellencamp's old studio, which a couple of buddies bought. And uh, some of the touring artists on uh, the, the everybody's good dog tour, like they, they run that ship now. And, and I had like lockout access to it, like whenever I wanted it, just everything, everything worked, you know, and then it was easy and I didn't have to live in LA and drive, you know, an hour and a half through traffic just to go to a rehearsal space that I'm paying for. It, it, it made a lot of sense and it was easy. That's funny. I didn't even think of Melon Camp. Does he kind of loom over that place in the way that like Springsteen does on the East Coast? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's part of Bloomington's claim to, to music fame is the whole Melon thing. Like, I remember there's there's like graffiti gets covered up anywhere you are. But there's one tag that never seemed to get covered up, uh, kind of in the center square, and it just said "sucking on a chili dog." Is it near a tasty freeze? Yes, it's. I mean, it's just the classic Melon Camp, and uh, I mean, yeah, in that way, it's sort of like everyone knows Melon Camp. Everyone knows that. I mean, I mean, no one's really talking about Melon Camp out there, but you know, you see his dad at just like out at the restaurants and bars, like hanging out. Everyone knows the Melon Camps at this point. And yeah, I mean, his studio is still like right there in town that is under a new name, but it's still being used. And I put out a couple great records uh, from there myself. So like still pumping out hits at the old uh, Melon Camp compound. And yeah, so I guess so. What's the timeline between Foxygen and and Diane Coffee? I mean, did, did you sort of jump knowing that you had this solo thing waiting for you? We were starting to do lots of European touring. So this was like, I was living with Rado at the, at at the very end of 2012. I had just moved in with him. 
And so, yeah, this is like kind of peak touring with Foxygen. You know, the things are going well. We were like traveling through Europe and stuff. And I think we had just gotten off a European tour and Rado had gone back to Los Angeles to spend the holidays with his family and Jackie. And I remember I, I was all alone. And I got sick and I just started you know what everyone always does like just demoing just because i had a computer and free time and i didn't want to go outside and it was like new year's eve was the first song the first day i started recording the first song i wrote um in a series of demos which would become you know the my friend fish record so i didn't even know i was writing a record i was just making songs because i was i wanted to uh business as usual and then those got into the hands of western vinyl and you know all dying coffee was born and then i had to move back to la so the record came out in 2013 so somewhere in there like probably summer of 2013 because the record came out in october i think that's when i moved to bloomington so for a long time i was still uh juggling both the foxygen tours as well as the dying coffee tours. Those were happening. Like we, we'd kind of plan out just because Foxygen was the more important thing at that moment, the more established thing. Pragmatically, the thing you could at least partially make a living doing. Yeah, exactly. First album, first tour, uh, definitely, uh, harsh on the old checkbook, but you know, I, I was able to, to do that by, yeah, like kind of prioritizing, the Foxygen tours and basing all the dying coffee tours around it, which was, you know, I gotta say talking about, you know, Melinda, my then just like partner, I was never home. It, you know, it was a wild turbulent time to, you know, I, I, we had to, you know, figure it out pretty quick. Cause it was like, we were tossed in the deep end as far as like relationships go. But like that's sort of the timeline. So and then I think when I finished those tours and then I think I finished the final tour on the Star Power uh album push and I had recorded the Everybody's Good Dog record and I was getting ready to like plan out all that stuff. And then, you know, Rado and Sam wanted to take the the touring of their next record in a different way with, like, big, you know, strings and, and horns and stuff. And and so, yeah, it was kind of a nice, you know, way for us to sort of, like, part ways. Like, you're going to do this new interpretation. And, I mean, for me, it was, it was – I always knew I was just, like, a hired gun. So it was really cool to do, you know, that amount of, of playing with them. And then I just hopped on the train and just – the dying coffee train and kind of never looked back. Then it was all dying coffee all the time. It felt like you were just kind of along for the ride. Uh, uh, during the Foxygen days. Um, I mean, yes and no. Like I, there was a part of me that didn't want that to end. I mean, they're my family, they're my family. And like some of the craziest touring I've ever done some, you know, some of the wildest moments and biggest crowds and biggest venues I've ever played was with Foxygen and, and when you're touring with like your lifelong buddies, I mean, it's special. It's fun. It was a really cool time. 
and yeah, I want, I, I never really wanted it to end. I wanted to feel like, you know, <laughs> I'm irreplaceable, but you know, I, I, I knew, I knew my place uh, and I knew if they wanted to try something different and, and go a different route, that that's their call because they're the writers. They're, so I respected that 100%. Based on this conversation, I, I assume that you know that, like, you're not going to be getting a lot of your own songs on those records. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I I never wrote. I, like, never even, on Star Power, I think I I never even played drums on Foxygen, which is funny. Like, when they had me in the studio for, like, the little bit of Star Power recording that I did, it was mostly, like, singing. And that's it. So, I, again, I think that actually really helped me understand, like, where, where I, where I stood with the band. Mm. It's, you know, I was a live touring musician, not a part of the creative aspect of like, especially recording like live. Yeah. I could toss out ideas that I had, but like the recording, the songwriting, that was all them, you know, which, (laughs) which was fun, which was fine to me. I mean, I was at that point uh, up until, you know, I started writing, the dying coffee stuff. I mean, the only reason I really showed people that was, that was for the first time me feeling like I had written songs that I was proud of. I had never really up into that point wrote anything that I was ready to share with anyone. I didn't really like my writing. So while I was touring with them, I was fine. Like, uh, you know, I was kind of on the mindset, like I can't write songs this, this good. I'm, I'm totally fine to just play drums and, and hang out on the bus and travel the world. And, and, you know, I was also in my early twenties. So it was like party 24 seven. What changed in the interim? What gave you the, the confidence to put these things out into the world? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like all of a sudden it was such a weird time. I, I, I think, um, I, I actually do think that like watching Sam and Rado and, and being around, um, they, I mean, they were prolific. They've been writing songs since they were in like elementary school, middle school. Uh, so they had years of like songwriting on top of me at that point. And I think just being around them and watching them and being exposed to the things they were, I mean, maybe it just helped my creative process or just who knows if that was it or I just got to a point where, you know, when I wrote those songs, I just listened to them and thought like, these are really cool and I'm proud of this. And I don't really know what changed. It just did. And, you know, I had, obviously the first people I showed was like Sam and Rado and they're like, this is cool. And I was like, cool. If you like this, this is really cool. And then I showed, uh, you know, some of the people at JAG cause we were in, in a sort of like, you're my friends. Like, do you want to hear like, uh, let me show you this thing I just recorded. Cause now I'm like excited about it with no intentions of anything other than just like wanting to share the stuff I I made. And then, you know, then it just all sort of happened. And when it did happen, there is like a little bit of validation, you know, and, and I could, I'm like, okay, people want to put this out and they believe in me. So, you know, I can maybe believe in myself a little bit more and have a little more confidence. And then when you see people, fans and stuff respond to it as well i mean you know songwriting is all about confidence you can there's some songs out there with like some super goofy silly lyrics that don't really mean anything but you see someone deliver that 
who just wholeheartedly believes in it. It's like, you know what? This is really cool. I can, I can vibe on this. I think, you know, at least 50% of, of what makes a song cool is just you thinking that it's cool and having faith in it. I wonder how much your background as an actor helped just in terms of uh, not songwriting, but just in terms of being able to really not just put yourself out there, but, but to put yourself out there with either confidence or at very least fake confidence. <laughs> Definitely those first tours like that, they, uh, my friend fish tours, there was definitely a lot of fake confidence because I was scared as all get out. But yeah, definitely coming from theater background, even like an improv background. And that also made it fun too, because I got to explore this, this dying coffee character in, in a way, I think for a long time, I sort of maybe use that as a crutch. I could hide behind that character a lot. And if, if Diane's out there, Diane will take care of everything and she's, she's wild. And, and I can, you know, Sean can just kind of let that be the front and center. Fast forwarding to now, I actually think with this album, the whole idea of it was just to really pull back the curtain or drop the facade or, or whatever it is and actually kind of show who Sean Fleming is a little bit the other the other half of of Diane Coffee. Well, we talked about Sean a, a bit. Who is Diane and and what is the distinction? Diane, okay, I always thought of Diane like the as more of like an energy than like an alternate ego or persona. Diane Coffee to me is that feeling that you get let's say you're a shy, reserved kid uh, and you go see a show. And that energy within the audience just consumes you. And all of a sudden you're screaming at the top of your lungs and dancing along with everyone else. It's that sort of energy. It's the voodoo. It's the thing that, that uh, takes you outside of yourself. And yeah. And so, you know, like I said, I never really thought of dying coffee as an alter ego. Hmm. So, you know, when my band is feeling, that they're dying coffee and when the crowd is feeling it they're dying coffee yeah and you know dying coffee is that feeling is big so dying coffee is big and bold and glam and beautiful you know i needed dying coffee to 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 help help me through the beginning stages of my career you know i i i was always a pretty shy kid up until high school and then I, I discovered theater. I discovered improv comedy. I was on this thing called comedy sports. For a while. Oh, yeah, I did comedy sports in San Jose. Oh, you know, okay, so you know. <laughs> I do, for better or for worse, I know. Yeah, and it, it's, it's improv except uh, with judges and referee shirts, basically. <laughs> it's, it, it's improv, but there's even more pressure. But I, I mean, it was so much fun, and it is a way to just be silly and be crazy. And you know, when you're doing improv, you're usually not yourself, you're a character. And I just, you know, kept taking that little, that little bit about my past and just like amplifying it and uh, putting a magnifying glass on that. And all of a sudden it was dying coffee. Were you acting prior to doing improv though? Cause you were acting pretty young. I was acting at like six years old. I started doing, I think the first thing I ever did was this TV series that never got picked up in the U.S. I heard it did pretty well in, like, Russia <laughs> or something. 
It's called Cyber Kids with a Z, and I just discovered it's on YouTube. It's like Power Rangers, but with like little kids uh, and virtual reality. It's crazy. Did your parents kind of nudge you in that direction? One, my dad was one of the producers on it. My dad's not in the film industry at all, but he was um, at the time like working with like investors to push this. It's kind of a weird combo pack of like virtual reality. And this is sort of like dawn of computers. And they actually bought up a bunch of old classic sci-fi rights and stuff. And they wanted to create, and this still blows my mind. They wanted to create a online streaming service where you could watch old sci-fi. So this is like pre Netflix, all that. And it just tanked because no one was ready to watch TV and stuff like that. Movies on internet speeds weren't ready to watch yeah, TV. Exactly. I mean, it was, you know, before it's time, but part of that was they were creating content for it as well. Um, and this was, I think one of the things they were using to jazz up investors I was like, we'll make kids shows and it's, it, it'll all tie in, which, you know, it's super cool. And, and, I would have loved to have been on the ground floor of pre-Netflix Netflix. But yeah, so that kind of got me into it. And then through that, because I was non-union, that was just with them. But all of a sudden I had something I could hand to, you know, potential agents and managers and got that. And then they, you know, started setting me up on auditions and stuff. And I got into voice acting with, like I landed a Disney role. And then once you're sort of in the Disney family, it's I was getting called in mostly for Disney stuff. And I think there was a time someone told me, and I, I have never verified this, but I like the idea of it. But I was told that I was at one point, like the most used child voice actor. It may be in Disney, maybe in the world. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I always thought that was pretty cool. Um, and I'll never check to see if that's true because it just makes me happy either way. <laughs> but yeah, so I was acting for a long time. And then high school happened and, you know, a couple things happened. My agent died, which just the old age just is a thing that just happened. And then my voice was starting to change too. And then also I found music at that and I was starting to get really excited about that. And when I had to go get new headshots and talk to find like a new agent. And all of a sudden I was just like treated as if I was like, you know, had to start over like bottom of the barrel in their eyes, you know, and I'm also in my teens. I'm like, to hell with this. I'm, I'm going to be a rock star. So I just kind of made that transition. I'm going to try something even more difficult. <laughs> to do for a living i know more unrealistic i'm gonna leave this career that's been super lucrative and awesome for many years and i'm gonna start over and become a rock star like is the such a silly silly move but you know i it worked right I, i was talking to someone else the other day about this and i think part of that was you're a teenager i had a lot of stuff i wanted to say and i took me until my early twenties to be able to like start actually doing lyrics that I felt vocalized what I wanted to say. But you know, there, there that whole thing about like, are you create like creating content versus creating art? And I think at the time 
I was looking at it. I, I look back now and I don't think the, the, when someone puts out a show, especially like these cartoons, I look back on like, these are all super awesome. Like it was artwork in a way, but at the time I thought like, I'm reading these words on a page and I have to do it the way that the director wants. Sure. It was somebody else's artwork. It was somebody else's art. And, you know, I guess I was bringing my own artistic interpretation to this role in a way. Like, that's the thing. Like I can look back and pick that apart. But at the time I was like, I wanted to do something that I was in complete control of. And at that time, like music just seemed like this new completely fresh way for me to do that i have to ask before we move on from the acting thing um i need to get this on the record <laughs> were you were you or were you not in crybaby at age three no no do you see that somewhere that's on your wikipedia page my wikipedia page is crazy the first credit is i mean like god bless you if you're in a john waters movie at that three like that's no, a pretty cool way to start no. your life i i mean if i was i am not privy to it that's hilarious sure. there was a time when my wikipedia said that like my i was like a superhero and i had a band of superhero people fighting to help uh I don't know, make, make my first record a hit. People take that stuff over and I never know what's going on. Is this your strange fan base that's doing this? I, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, if there's any uh, fans out there that are listening to this, uh, please someone fix my Wikipedia page because it's wild. There's a lot of credits. Like when I go, sometimes like someone will, you know, every time someone finds out that I did like, oh, wait, you were a voice actor? Like immediately they like pull up like an imdb and they're like showing me like you were in that and that and i'll be honest like half the stuff i don't even remember doing i sort of remember the titles i was so young at the time you're walking into a booth you know it's animation right so so you you just have like no context for the final product i mean a lot of the big ones of course i remember the ones like with like series that were important you remember being max yeah exactly i remember that because i knew who max was like i knew the lion king stuff i knew the teacher's pet was cool because like i did that for a long time and it was working alongside nathan lane and even like at that point that young i knew who nathan lane was so uh, i was i was stoked on that but a lot of stuff like I look back that I was like super naive about like the last thing I did was not even a cartoon. It was the, it was a feature film. It was the uh, Jeepers Creepers two, you know, like in the horror movies that you have the one death in the beginning that kind of sets the tone for the whole, that was me. I was the first kid to die. And I set the whole tone because Ray Weiss is my dad and is now on like to seek vengeance for my death. And, to avenge his son and that's the whole movie is based on that but i didn't know who who he was he leland palmer yeah i'm at like if i mean if i if i would have seen twin peaks like i would have been freaking out but like i went to that into that with a naivety that just probably made things easier probably acted way cooler than i think that's a good quality in a child actor and probably something that a lot of these movies are looking for because like especially if you've sort of been through the ringer and you're really a showbiz kid in that way, like mm-hmm. there's a, there's an authenticity that isn't there. Oh yeah. I, I kind of have a, a naivety about all sorts of things. Like I'm not, some people are really, really good at Jonathan Rado. Uh, 
really, really good at creating these like mind palaces of like everybody who's produced every single bit of music and knows every band member and every, you know, historical moment in music history. And I, I can't, I can't do that. Like I know, I know there's, I, I know some songs that I really like and I think I know the, the band name. Sometimes I don't even know the lead singer's name. Like a lot of that times I, I've definitely been in situations, especially with Foxygen, where I know I've been meeting people that I had, that I should know. I, I totally should know. That's like a superpower of not like freaking out when you meet somebody famous. Yeah, yeah, I guess, <laughs> I guess so. Like there's, there's definitely pros and probably a few cons about not knowing what you're doing or who you're talking to. But definitely, I think I'm, I'm always keeping my cool when I'm talking to accidentally talking to Harrison Ford or something. Uh, Han Solo, you know. I know, I know Harrison Ford. There's a few people I know, uh, but there's a lot of people I sure. know. Sure, yeah. sure. That was just the, the worst possible example. Of I that. know, I know. Well, it's like, I can't name the people who I don't know. <laughs> Touche. Are you done with the acting thing for good? No, well, so I, uh, in between Everybody's a Good Dog and Internet Arms, I spent a few months at the Lyric Opera House in Chicago doing Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, and that was my first time back into like live theater. That really combines the two worlds for you in a nice way. It was so much fun. I got to, yeah, I got to play Herod and he, he was glammed the fuck up. I mean, he was so extra. I was wearing, wearing like this little loincloth, but like I was in full crazy drag and then I had an 80-foot golden cape train. It was wild. I'd never done anything like that before. So it was like... And I got that role because of the casting director saw a dying coffee show. And they're like, you need to fly back to New York and like audition for this. Which is crazy because the show is in Chicago. And I live so close to Chicago, but I had to fly to New York to audition. So crazy. Yeah, that was really fun. And I would love to do that kind of a thing again the only problem with theater like that though is that took months and months and it really it was kind of a detriment to the internet arms record just because the space in between it's already i mean you do a whole album cycle and then you write and record and then you deliver and by the time you delivered you still have to wait now it's like you know 10 months to a year for waiting in line for a record to get pressed or longer if the label makes you hold it. Yeah. Or longer. I mean like, and that really took a lot of steam out of like this momentum that I had with dying coffee. So I, I don't know if I'd necessarily at this point do another theater production like that. And that was pretty short as far as theater productions go, but yeah, I mean being back in LA I think I would like to kind of get back involved in that. I, I have to, again, start from the ground up, but uh, I feel like I've finally settled in enough into Los Angeles. And I mean, I've got an album rollout that's currently happening, so I'm all consumed with dying coffee. But, you know, when I'm done with tour, I, I've definitely been considering just going back out because I could knock out a couple auditions again. That, that'd be cool. <laughs> I could do that. It won't be as painful with a little time away, I suspect. Yeah. It's interesting to say, you know, that the character was 
glam the fuck out and that you hadn't done that before. But I mean, obviously, Danny Coffey is you're inhabiting a different gender. It's almost like a non-gender. You know, it's it's just. It is glam. It is. I mean, it is femme to an extent, but you called the character her. Yeah. I Well, I feel like it's become dying coffee was never the band name was never supposed to be like an alter ego. That sort of you very consciously chose like what sounds like a person's name. Yeah, well, it was, you know, I, I thought when I went into it, I never really took band names seriously. I mean, as long as you're the Beatles is just a dumb pun. You can have a stupid band name and just make great music and it doesn't matter. So, you know, it was pretty quick. I was listening to Diana Ross and I was like, Diane. And then this other song I was listening to Mr. Uh, Mr. Coffee. Uh, and I was like, cool, Diane, because I needed <laughs> the, the labels like you need a band name so we can move on and print this record because I was just really pushing that. So it was a really quick thing. And then as that, pers- you know, that like that being came into existence or that energy happened and people just again, yeah, you're right. It sounds like a name and people started calling me Diane a lot. And, you know, I just sort of took on that role and and you know yeah i feel like diane coffee is genderless but at the same time it's both them i I, it's kind of whatever it is that it needs to be you're using they them pronouns now is that right yeah i'm fine with he she they them uh uh. the dynamic is really interesting to sort Mm -hmm. of inhabit this this female character but also interviews that you did for internet arms it was all male pronouns so it sounds it sounds like that's like a fairly recent it was, transition it, I, I had um yeah that's that's more of a recent transition i've i've always known well no I, I haven't always known but i've always felt like s- something wasn't quite i wasn't quite like a just strictly male i mean i i, I feel like it's pretty easy for me and family to fall into just using the male pronouns just because it's, I went, you know, 30 plus years of my life using that. So it just, it, it happens. And I'm, I really, I really don't, for, for me personally, I understand how important they are for people, especially when you're finding your truth. For me, it wasn't really that important. I just, I needed to know who I was inside. And, you know, that, that was what was important to me. That's why I say he, she, they, uh, it works for me. Cause I kind of float. I, I've always found myself as more like gender fluid. It really depends on, because yeah, like we're talking about me being on stage. I feel a whole lot more, um, feminine on stage than I do masculine a hundred percent. And, you know, there'll just be periods of time where I just feel you know, more feminine and, and, and that's, that that's fine with me. You know, that's just who I am. But yeah, I kind of, as far as like using pronouns, like I, I change, change that up all the time. I understand that. And I've talked to a lot of people who are in that place. I mean, obviously making music, writing mm-hmm. music, and then putting that music out in the world. These are like deeply personal acts. Mm-hmm bearing yourself on this record in particular it seems like a very personal record i wonder if inhabiting this character this this feminine character sort of gave you 
permission to connect with the side of yourself that maybe you hadn't necessarily been comfortable connecting with previously. Absolutely. I I feel like I also needed to find the right verbiage for it. And I do thank, you know, my, my wife, Melinda, for helping me through that. Um, You know, they, and I mean, it's not easy entering a relationship with somebody and like, yeah, you know, them sort of coming out the other side, not being exactly what you thought they were going to be. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Melinda is in a somewhat similar, you know, mm. we'll go by they and she, another queer, um, amazing human being. And yeah, they, they, you know, they, they know they had, they had that language for it. And when I was describing all the things that I had been feeling like throughout my life, just help me help me get there and to sh- i mean because the the whole you know Diane that you see on stage you know they helped me cultivate that like really put it together um and also yeah through doing that it helped me find out who i actually was i mean i had been you know mostly like growing up visibly uh i was you know a uh straight cis uh male you presented as male i pres- yeah i presented as straight cis male and and secretly like you know i was i, I couldn't have relationships but i'd see men i i uh kind of <laughs> again like as i would change and shift i would go through different changes and and i think that was the hardest part like before i even could understand like gender fluid, like feeling one way and then feeling a different way and that not being okay. Cause I couldn't figure out like what the hell was happening in my life. It was like super turbulent. It existed, but, but we didn't have the language for these ideas in no. the same way that like, if you know, if you were born a generation or two earlier, you wouldn't have had the language to describe being gay. Yeah. I just thought I was, it, but that's the thing. Like I thought for a while, like, you know, I'd see, I'd see a boy and I'd be like, well, I'm gay. That's just what it is. And then I wouldn't, you know, then I'd be attracted to a woman. I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's not right. Maybe I'm bi. And then, then I wouldn't, I'd have like whole periods where it's like, I'm not attracted to men at all. I'm like, well, maybe, okay, maybe I was just exploring or, you know, like I just didn't know what it was. And, and then it's just like, well, I feel, you know, I feel a, a you know, I feel feminine. I feel like a woman, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm trans. And then that, and then I wouldn't. And then I'd be like, well, no, okay. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just gay. Or I like, I don't, I, I I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And it took me so long to just like land on, on the fluidity of, of my sexuality and my gender. And yeah, being, (laughs) being Diane really did help me get there and melinda helped me get there and this you know the the queer community that has kind of come up right alongside of diane coffee like they helped me get there um and yeah i I think you know again i was (laughs) i was just talking about how like the the pronouns like i never really cared too much about but 
you know, I, now, I guess I don't care about it now, but then yeah, trying to find something that I, that was me was really important. That journey was important. Once you figured it out. And I'm still figuring well, not figure, out. Figure it out's a strong word, but, but once yeah. you sort of had the words for it. Yeah. There, you know, I, I think there was a part of me that also, <laughs> and again, I'm just talking about myself, but for me, I almost just stopped caring about it too much because I, I, I found the love of my life, you know, and I, and I can be whoever I am and that person loves me. So I stopped really worrying about it. It's just like, I don't have to think about it too much. I like, you know, I love them. They love me and I can just exist. And like that, that works. So I've kind of like, you know, for now it's just like, if I feel a certain way, I can talk to them about it and that's cool. And if I feel a certain way about it another day, I can talk about it and move on. So it's not really as big of a deal that the, I'll always be on a journey, but for in some regards, like I, you know, I'm, I'm on the boat now and that's, that's good. <laughs> in a sense, you've parlayed into a career or at very least, like you have this outlet where you can yeah. go full bore into that side of yourself. Yeah. It's funny though. Cause like I said, like this is the first, like, you know, a, a, a lot of that, this, you know, a lot of me creatively has been very, you know, leaning on the Diane aspect of it. And like I said, there's like a lot of different versions of me and I've, I've been, you know, I haven't really, you know, done the Sean Fleming thing. You know, there's something that's just not as crazy bombastic and someone that, you know, I can actually talk about my past a little bit, you know, and, and, and like who, who I was growing up and the people who shaped me. And, and I think this was a very, very important record like lyrically for me to write if anything just to kind of like round out like what i actually want to say as a artist i think about the impact that the past two years have had on me on a personal level i know that you're coming from what was sort of ostensibly almost like a concept record right the last one (laughs) yeah to something that i know in conversations now that i have with people i'm honest in a way that i wouldn't have been before there just isn't a lot of sort of bullshit there isn't you know i perhaps i've lost some of my social skills i just have to be really honest with people and like and when people are asking me how i am i'm i'm honest and i i you know i've I've been through some like health struggles and other things over the past year and you ask me how i am and you know I'm, i'm i'm gonna tell you what i've been dealing with and and you know i think that there were a couple there are a couple ways that people could process this moment these moments through art and the way that you found i think is similar that you found that like it's it's a pandemic record just in the sense that that it's deeply personal and that it's a side of yourself that maybe you wouldn't have been comfortable revealing to people two years ago yeah i think definitely the lockdown living with myself allowed me to really explore the depths of me where whereas like maybe i wouldn't have had that opportunity otherwise uh yeah you know this you're right i mean coming out of internet arms that was a concept record and it was very clean it was all in the box and i feel like i had 
reached this point of like that record was there's a there's a lot in that record i love that record a lot but like because it was like an 80s you know synthesizers and and talking about you know computers like taking over the world like there's parts of it that are just silly and like it it again like there was a, a lot of that record that i you know felt like it was just it was make believe you know and going back to you know why i first started writing i, I think when i was locked down like taking a good look at, at myself it's like i i started writing because i wanted to I had things I wanted to say and express about myself. And I feel like I started to maybe lose that a little bit. And so, yeah, being stuck with myself was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Because, I, I mean, this, I think this is, like, lyrically, I know this is the best album I've ever made. And I I had more fun doing this than I had in like a very long time. And I got to do it with friends who I hadn't seen in a very long time. And I got to work through some issues that had been, you know, I've been kind of like dealing with for a, a long time. And yeah, so I, in a way it's sort of the same thing. Like, you know, you ask, you ask me how I'm doing and I'll, I'll release a record. <laughs> mm-hmm. 